Hi everyone, and welcome back to A Book Nerd and the Bible. My name is Sam, and each week I take a look at some of my favorite stories and how they compare to some of my favorite biblical ones. This week we are on the third and final part of our discussion of Harry Potter and the Nativity Story. We've discussed the villains and the side characters, but today we are actually turning our attention to the stars. That's right, we are taking a look at how we are introduced to Harry Potter and Jesus of Nazareth. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes, then I really encourage you to go back and start at the beginning. Of course, I think the conversations in and of themselves are really cool, but I also give a lot of context and history for both of the stories in those episodes. So if you want to join the conversation from the beginning, then I highly recommend going back to listen to those. Our first two podcasts also focus mainly on the Gospel of Matthew from the Nativity Story. I'm actually going to be bouncing around the Gospels a little bit today, but I will do my best to let you know which Bible verses I am pulling these stories from. I think it is going to be a tremendous way to conclude our look at the origin stories for Harry and Jesus, and I'm really, really, really excited for this episode. As a final reminder, I do want to say that I am going to be discussing details we learn later in the Harry Potter series, so if you haven't read the books and you want to avoid spoilers, then I recommend stopping here. But also, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone came out in 1997, so you've had some time, peeps. With that said, I think we are finally ready to get started. So let's return to number four, Privet Drive, in ancient Israel. Let's dive in. I used this first discussion topic to give some historical background in our first two episodes. I think looking at the historical context of biblical stories is important for understanding the story itself and allows us to dive deeper into our comparisons. This week, I think it is time to address the elephant in the room, though. The Christmas story is a hard story to take at face value. You have angels, instructions and dreams, infanticide, babies in mangers, and supernatural stars. Christians have been wrestling with the truth of this story pretty much since the creation of the religion, and I think it's entirely understandable why many outside of the Christian faith totally disregard it. However, I want to take some time to talk about where our stories of Christmas come from and how they've changed over time. I mentioned this in our first episode, but only two gospel writers even include the story of Jesus' birth, Matthew and Luke. The Gospel of Matthew is attributed to one of Jesus' disciples named Matthew, but it is likely the account was written nearly 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. A general introduction to Matthew from Yale Divinity School says this account is probably intended for well-educated Jewish Christians who already believe Jesus was the Messiah. This fits perfectly from our reading in the first few podcasts because Matthew makes several allusions to Old Testament prophecies in his telling of the Nativity. The Gospel of Luke is traditionally attributed to a physician who traveled with Paul, one of the major authors of the New Testament. Luke the physician may have actually written this account because it is addressed to another companion of Paul, and the author comes from the Greek cities where Paul's missions occurred. Interestingly, the Gospel of Luke is written for a primarily Greek and Roman audience. This Gospel may be an attempt to make Christianity appear more acceptable to a Roman audience. And some scholars think Luke is even antagonistic to certain aspects of Christianity that appear more Jewish in origin. Luke is also telling the first history of the Christian church, and this gospel is a two-part history that starts with Jesus and the Gospel of Luke and continues with the history of the church in the book of Acts. I personally find it fascinating that the two gospels that include a narrative about Jesus' birth are aiming to do two entirely different things. These authors aren't trying to give historically accurate descriptions of Jesus' life so they don't mind including details that might not necessarily be true 
if it would make their audience further appreciate Jesus' status. This is super important for us to remember when we read the Nativity stories. Although some strands of modern Christianity believe the Bible is inherently true, the truth is that the authors of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke just did not think that way when they wrote these stories. The goals of these authors really help us understand why the Bible contains two different nativity stories. The author of Matthew wants to bridge the gap between Jesus and the Hebrew Bible, so his telling of Jesus' birth is filled with references to Old Testament scripture. His audience would have understood these references to be a fulfillment of Jewish prophecy and a reassurance of Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. Luke has a much more difficult task of situating Jesus in Israel and explaining why he is still relevant to Gentiles. His nativity story is more about painting a picture of where Jesus came from than fitting Jesus into an already existing idea. So, we can see that the story of Jesus' birth already meant different things to different people at the beginning of Christianity. Early Christians would continue to tinker with the stories of the nativity, and I'm going to give you a little taste of how wild their ideas could be later in the podcast. But I hope this helps to understand why trying to read these gospel narratives as a straightforward history is a bad idea. The authors are taking pieces of things that they have heard a full generation after Jesus lived and trying to fit them into the stories they want to tell. When you layer two more millennia on top of these differences, then you get our modern Christmas traditions, like Christmas trees and stockings. It's easy to see how this would confuse people. That being said, even though the gospel accounts may not render an historically accurate description of the birth of Christ, there are still plenty of reasons to examine them. Sean Winter from Jesus at Pilgrim Theological College states it this way, It doesn't matter if they are not historically accurate, because when we celebrate Christmas, we are not remembering what happened. It's a drama. It's a narrative. And in retelling the narrative, we are not making a claim to its historical accuracy. We are simply saying that it is an important story for the church and the life of the world. I think this sums up really nicely the purpose of studying these accounts of Jesus' birth. It helps me understand who the early church thought he was, and in turn, who I think Jesus is in my own life. And that is one of the main reasons I started this podcast. I believe looking at stories like the Nativity story, alongside something like Harry Potter, helps me understand both stories and what they mean to me. And I hope it will do that for you too. I think that is all the historical background for this week. Don't forget, I give out the sources I use after the conclusion. So if you want to learn where you can find more information about the Gospels and their authors, then stick around for that. But for now, let's dive into our first point about the boy who lived and the King of Kings. We have already made a few connections between Harry and Jesus in our first two episodes. They're both hunted down by villains, they're both visited by three figures after their birth, and they're both marked by a supernatural sign, a star and a scar. This week, we are going to be looking in a few new places for comparisons, though. This week, we start with a look at some interesting transportation vehicles used by our heroes. In Chapter 1, The Boy Who Lived from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, we get an introduction to one of the most beloved characters in the franchise. The half-giant Hagrid is tasked with carrying baby Harry from the remains of his house in Godric's Hollow to his new home at Number 4 Privet Drive. Here, Hagrid makes an entrance that is pretty hard to forget. The book says, and I quote, A low rumbling sound had broken the silence around Dumbledore and McGonagall. It grew steadily louder as they looked up and down the street for some sign of a headlight. It swelled to a roar as they both looked up at the sky. 
and a huge motorcycle fell out of the air and landed on the road in front of them. End quote. This makes for one of the most iconic moments in the book series, and it's a perfect introduction to the wizarding world and Hagrid. The motorbike is so cool that I think we forget the fact that a giant man is literally carrying a baby on it. The motorcycle in the movies has a sidecar that seats the baby Harry, but the book doesn't mention that. I think the book even implies that Hagrid is holding Harry in one of his massive arms while they are flying. Either way, the prospect of transporting a child on a flying motorcycle is absolutely insane. Logistically, this is a terrible idea, and it's frankly amazing that a one-year-old baby soars into the sky with a giant and makes it safely to Surrey, England. Although I think it is difficult to rationalize, there are some really great literary symbols embedded in this introduction. The first is a really subtle nod to Hagrid's character. He is a giant of a man who roams the Forbidden Forest with no fear. But on the other hand, he is a true gentle giant that can be incredibly sensitive and understanding. A man carrying a baby on a motorcycle is a perfect analogy for the tough yet loving person Hagrid is. I also think the motorcycle trip represents the unexpected power and journey of Harry Potter. No one expected a seemingly normal infant to be able to vanquish the Dark Lord, and yet, Harry manages to do so. He has an unexpected power that manifests at the perfect time for the world. Now, a seemingly normal motorcycle that can fly is given to Hagrid at the perfect time as well. Hagrid can't perform magic, and he's too heavy to ride a broom which kind of makes you wonder why he was even given this task, but anyway. The motorcycle is a reflection of this unexpected power given to Harry. The motorcycle ride itself is probably a foreshadowing of the unusual journey Harry takes on his way to defeating Lord Voldemort. Harry lives in obscurity for 11 years, is whisked away to Hogwarts by the reappearance of Hagrid, discovers his background, and overcomes a laundry list of difficult obstacles to stop Voldemort in just book one. The rest of the series continues the uncertainty and unpredictability of Harry's life. A motorcycle ride over England is just one of the ways Harry ends up taking the long way around to figure something out. The fact that Hagrid is in control of the vehicle may be just another hint that Harry himself isn't in control of the places his journey takes him. As impractical and illogical as the motorcycle seems, it is a fitting first ride for someone who will experience some truly crazy things throughout the books. Switching gears. I think anyone who has ever gone to a church Christmas play can probably recall some of the details to their mind. One part of the play typically contains a reenactment of Mary going to Bethlehem and riding on a donkey. The image of a pregnant woman riding an uncomfortable donkey is pretty common on Christmas cards and cartoons. However, neither Matthew nor Luke has Mary riding a donkey. In fact, both stories leave out any mention of the couple's trip to the little town. So how did this become part of the story? Well, the Gospel of Luke gives us the imagery of baby Jesus in a manger. Luke writes a group of shepherds were tending their flocks near Bethlehem, when an angel appears to them and says the Messiah has been born in the town and can be found in a manger. So the shepherds go to find him, and quote, They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger, end quote. This is from Luke chapter 2. You have this great story where Jesus is lying in a manger and shepherds come to greet him. Early Christian writers and artists begin to associate animals bowing down to Jesus 
as a sign that the natural world recognized the Son of God. Eventually, that would lead to more elaborate stories of the birth, and Mary riding on a donkey would become a central part of those tales. Remember when I told you that some early Christians had some truly wild ideas about the nativity story? Well, those come in here. When they were trying to make a connection between Jesus and the natural world, some of the animals they used were outrageous. Let's just say a donkey is pretty tame next to the dragons that some authors used. All that said, although the Gospels don't mention a donkey, I think it is a detail that deserves some comparison. When we think of the Christmas story, a donkey has to be there. Heck, I even played a donkey in the Christmas play as a child. It's just too good not to discuss. To a modern reader, a donkey is an objectively horrible choice to ride on. We think of them as stubborn work beasts that are notoriously finicky. But donkeys were an important symbol for the family of David in the Old Testament. Donkeys were seen as a symbol of peace when a king would ride one into the city. And some Christian writers are probably making the point that the mother of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is riding into Bethlehem on one. This makes sense when we remember that Luke writes the shepherds were told, quote, On earth peace to those whom his favor rest, end quote. Today, we often interpret the presence of the donkey in the manger as a sign of the humble origins of Jesus. Both assumptions make sense depending on the cultural lens through which you view them. The donkey is probably best viewed simultaneously as a sign of humility and peace, and we can see both of them as aspects of Jesus' future character. I think the absolute coolest comparison is how these unlikely vessels are used again later in the life of both heroes. For Harry, Hagrid fittingly takes him away from number four Privet Drive one last time on the flying motorcycle. Harry is now accustomed to magic and flying, so the motorcycle serves more as a reminder of how far Harry has come. For Jesus, both Matthew and Luke record him entering Jerusalem for a final time on a donkey. The thematic elements likely do not change from the nativity story. This is clearly meant to be a sign of Jesus as a peaceful, humble king entering Jerusalem. I really love how both stories use these vehicles at the end of their tellings. It's such a great way to recall to the readers how much has changed since our introduction to the heroes, but how the heroes themselves remain tied to the same destiny they always had. Unlikely entrances lead to sentimental exits for Harry and Jesus, and it makes the stories that much more memorable. I want to fast forward a little bit to a story that takes place right after Jesus' birth. This comes from chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke, right after the Nativity story. Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple to perform essentially the equivalent of a christening. The Bible then introduces us to a man named Simeon who was righteous and devout, and the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would see the Messiah before he died. The scripture says, quote, Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. End quote. Then Simeon hands the child back and gives a super cryptic message. This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel 
and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now this is some serious Messiah stuff. Old men recognizing the identity of a child is a pretty common trope in most Messiah stories. For nerds like me, think Aang from Avatar The Last Airbender. But, then Simeon tells Mary that a sword will pierce her soul too. I can't imagine what response I would probably have to this. I probably wouldn't be amazed if I had had the number of dreams and angel visits that these two had had, but it would still be pretty hard to believe. But wait, there's more to this story. Simeon isn't the only one to recognize baby Jesus that day. Luke goes on to introduce an older prophetess named Anna, who stayed in the temple worshiping day and night. She must have heard the commotion caused by Simeon, because she decides to approach the couple. Luke says, At that moment, she came and began to praise God, and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Talk about a christening. This is a truly euphoric story, where two faithful, elderly people are rewarded by God and given a glimpse of the small child who will be the Messiah. They have to know in their hearts that they will likely never see his ministry, but they can be comforted that they know it is coming soon. I think this is a beautiful story, and it's really sad that it isn't included in more traditional Christmas stories. In so many ways, the joy Simeon and Anna experience at seeing someone who will change the world is so much more tangible to us than the supernatural things in the Nativity story. We all know the excitement of seeing a celebrity in person. I imagine that this is that feeling times 10. I think the Harry Potter series has a perfect scene to compare to this. Harry is not a baby like Jesus, but we get the first glimpse at his celebrity status here. When Hagrid takes Harry to London, they have to enter Diagon Alley through a small pub called the Leaky Cauldron because Harry can't apparate yet. Harry tells us, It was a tiny, grubby-looking pub. For a famous place, it was very dark and shabby. You can probably think of a few dive bars that fit that description in your own mind. But Harry gets a warm welcome, and is soon shaking hands with everyone there. I want to point our attention to two individuals who are singled out in the story, Doris Crockford and Daedalus Diggle. We don't get much of a description for Doris. She introduces herself to Harry, and then she keeps coming up to him to shake his hand over and over again. Harry recognizes Daedalus Diggle, who has apparently bowed to Harry in a shop before. This is a big deal for Daedalus. He remembers, cried Daedalus, looking around at everyone. Did you hear that? He remembers me. Both of these scenes serve as the moment when the outside world recognizes our heroes for who they are. They are moments of joy when someone the world has waited years to see is finally there in person. For Daedalus and Simeon, these are two men who are waiting for the Messiahs to arrive. Simeon is told he will see the Messiah before he dies, and he greets Jesus with unbelievable joy. He basically exclaims he can die now that he has seen this small baby. Daedalus is sort of in the same boat. He has seen Harry at a time when Harry had no idea of how famous he was. Daedalus must have waited and waited to hear about the child after seeing him in his shop. It had to feel like a dream, and I wonder whether his friends even believed that he saw him. Now, Harry has walked into this dirty little pub in front of a bunch of witnesses. Both of these men have to be on cloud nine after seeing the mirage of a messiah come to life. For Anna and Doris, I think the meeting has to come as more of a shock. Anna is living at the temple day and night, 
and she only comes over to the child after Simeon's commotion. She then starts to tell everyone in the temple about seeing Jesus, and her excitement is palpable. Doris tells Harry that she can't believe she is meeting him at last. Like Anna, she clearly did not expect to see Harry that day. However, she mirrors the faithfulness of Anna by returning to shake Harry's hand over and over again. Perhaps she even goes to the Leaky Cauldron every day, and this is her reward for the type of faithfulness she has shown. The authors are using these characters to show different things, though. Simeon and Anna are examples of devout followers who are rewarded for their faith. We have to imagine that they have some sort of high status in their community because of their relationship to the temple. They are showing both God's faithfulness to those who follow him and the recognition of Jesus as the Messiah by those who know Old Testament scripture. Daedalus and Doris are an example of Harry's indifference to class status. Harry has lived with the ultra-uptight Dursleys all his life, but he walks into this dirty pub and shakes the patrons' hands until they grow tired of it. He never once comments about their appearance or makes them feel bad for drinking in the middle of the day. Daedalus and Doris are a way to show Harry's acceptance of people as they are. Harry has an amazing capacity to see through social barriers, and this is one of the first examples. I really enjoy the setting of these stories. Jesus is being brought to the heart of the Jewish world. The temple in Jerusalem would have been spectacular when Jesus is brought here for this ritual. Funnily enough, the temple was rebuilt by Herod the Great, the would-be murderer in Matthew's account of the story. There would be markets, religious areas, small libraries, all kinds of things at this place. I sort of feel like the Leaky Cauldron fills the same role. Is there anything more British than a pub? There are thousands of tiny temples scattered throughout Great Britain where people meet to spend money, talk literature or politics, and the inside of a pub can serve as a sanctuary away from the doldrums of everyday life just as much as a temple can. Both places represent where the normal meets the magical. Harry and Jesus are really welcomed with open arms at the most important areas of their culture. It's a perfect way to start our hero's journeys into the larger world. Our final point for the day is a comparison between the hometowns of Jesus and Harry. Most of our conversation for the nativity story has involved a tiny little town called Bethlehem, but Luke says Joseph was drawn to the city because of a Roman census. Matthew simply says the couple gave birth there. Whatever reason the birth ended up there, the couple did not live here during Jesus' childhood. Matthew says after the family escapes to Egypt, Joseph is still scared to return to Israel, but having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Luke gives a slightly different explanation after the Simeon and Anna experience. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. If you are ever wondering how Jesus got the name Jesus of Nazareth, well, here's your answer. So what type of place was Nazareth? The city was pretty small, actually. It was home to probably a few hundred people, and it was likely focused on agriculture and some small tradesmen. According to Matthew, Joseph was a carpenter or possibly a stonemason, and he probably taught Jesus these skills as well. The family likely would be middle class by modern standards, but it's kind of tough to know for sure. Nazareth may appear idyllic from the outside, but a closer look at the city during this time reveals massive unrest. A few years before Jesus' birth, the Galilean administrative capital was raided by a local rebel 
who armed the town in a revolt against Roman rule. The Romans did not put up with this, and it was recorded that the entire town was burned down and its inhabitants sold into slavery. About ten years later, a Jewish man named Judas the Galilean petitioned the people of that region to stop paying Rome taxes. It's even possible that Jesus could have been living in Nazareth at this time. Both events actually resulted in mass crucifixions of Jewish rebels, so the young Jesus would have received a clear message about what happens when you mess with Roman rule. We have talked quite a bit about number four privet drive, but I think this background on Galilee gives us some new ways to think about the relationship between Harry and Jesus. The first thing that pops into my mind is how these places seem to have horrors hidden just beneath the surface. I think it is easy to romanticize an agricultural Nazareth where Jesus would have grown up in a friendly small town. The truth is that he likely witnessed mass executions and rubbed shoulders with people bristling at the cruelty of the Romans. It's even possible that Jesus had to help rebuild the town the Romans burnt down if he accompanied his dad to the massive building project occurring there during his childhood. This is a tough world filled with lessons about your place in it. I think Privet Drive also hides its horrors with a nice face. The house sits on a quaint street and is filled with upper-middle-class families. We find out later there is even a playground nearby, and the movies certainly paint a picture of well-kept lawns and gardens. However, anyone who has read the series knows the abuse Harry goes through at this house. He is often underfed, he receives very little attention, and he is hardly ever given proper-fitting clothes. I shudder to think what he wore during winter in Britain for those first 11 years, honestly. The Dursleys put up a wonderful front to hide these instances of child abuse. They have the wealth and ability to take care of Harry properly, but they don't, because they're angry at him for being a reminder that another world exists. Privet Drive in Galilee may seem like safe places for children to grow up, but our heroes have to survive a hardship that they probably didn't realize at the time. I think the backgrounds of their hometowns also give us some revelation into what we see later in the heroes' lives. For Jesus, he preaches a pacifist style that rejects worldly possessions in favor of treasure in heaven. He has seen what happens when you fight fire with fire, and he is trying to share this lesson with a fractured nation dealing with the same issues as Nazareth. He rejects wealth and power because he has seen how it corrupted the Roman rulers of his region. Why would he want to emulate that? He still speaks against both the ruling Roman powers for their cruelty and the Jewish leaders who are allowing it to happen. But his style is certainly formed by his background in Nazareth. Harry never loses sight of how it feels to have nothing. We see him sharing everything he has from the first scene aboard the Hogwarts Express. He is kind and gentle, and he is even sympathetic with creatures that aren't human throughout the series. The feeling of hunger and loneliness he experiences at Number 4 Privet Drive is clearly something he uses to feel empathy for others. Both of our heroes convert these feelings into something positive. Hurt people often hurt people, but these are two prime examples of how something positive can grow in poisoned places. Their hardships shape who they are for sure, but they aren't limited to that. Nazareth and Privet Drive are the last places you would anticipate these types of heroes to come from. Nazareth itself is a small town, so it already has limited opportunities. Beyond that, it can be a dangerous place filled with cruel leaders and those ready to seek revenge for the wrongs they have suffered. One gospel even records one man asking, what good can come from Nazareth? It's the last place you would expect a well-spoken, pacifist leader to come from. Jesus bucks the trends of his hometown, and he learns lessons that help him become the Messiah he is meant to be. The upper-middle-class snootiness of Number 4 Privet Drive 
is an unlikely place to find a hero that is comfortable around dirty pub patrons, centaurs, and house elves. It's even tougher to become kind when you're subjected to the type of cruelty Harry is exposed to. However, Harry doesn't let these experiences taint his view of people. He becomes a kind and thoughtful leader who seeks the best for all. Harry and Jesus are more than the places they come from, while representing the very struggles their homes embodied. That is a wrap for our Harry Potter and the Nativity Story series. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was a huge inspiration in my life, and I had a really great time breaking it down alongside the Christmas story. Honestly, I learned a lot about both stories going through it this way, and I hope y'all got something out of it as well. This is probably not the last time we will be entering the wizarding world, so if you are an HP fan, expect to be making a trip back sometime in the future. I think this was a perfect way to start the podcast, and I'm excited to keep the comparisons going. As always, if you are looking for some sources to dig into anything you heard about today, then stick around after this conclusion where I share some of my sources. Next week, we will be starting a new series comparing the origins of Frodo Baggins from The Lord of the Rings to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. J.R.R. Tolkien himself was a prominent Christian, so I think we are going to find a lot of similarities we did and didn't expect in this series. The first episode is going to be comparing the role of Bilbo Baggins and John the Baptist for our two main characters. You are not going to want to miss that, so be looking for it next Monday. I want to thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoyed this little podcast, then please share it with others that are lovers of books, biblical comparisons, or anything in between. We are just starting out, so we need all the help we can to get the word out. Also, please check out our website at anchor.fm slash booknerdinthebible, or find us on Twitter at booknerd underscore Bible. You can find the next episode of A Book Nerd in the Bible on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Good Pods. Thanks again, and may the book nerd in you be blessed until we meet again. As promised, here are a few good resources if you're interested in the material we talked about this week. For a look at the writers of Matthew and Luke, check out a frontline PBS article called The Gospel of Luke, an Oxford University Press blog titled Two Christmas Stories, an Analysis of New Testament Narratives, a post from the Uniting Church in Australia called The Birth of Jesus, What is Fact and Fiction, Probably, and finally, the Britannica Encyclopedia article for The Gospel of Luke. For a look at the meaning of donkeys in the Bible, then I recommend Lessons from a Donkey by Alan R. Rudnick. An ox, an ass, a dragon? Sorry, there were no animals in the Bible's nativity scene, from the Conversation Online magazine. And Biblical Donkey from Mani Almalek, from the International Association of Semiotic Studies. For more about the temple in Jerusalem during Jesus' day, look at the Britannica Encyclopedia article for the temple in Jerusalem. And finally, for a look at Galilee, Can Anything Good Come from Nazareth? The Hometown of Jesus by Paul Anderson in the Huffington Post. A CNN show called Finding Jesus. The third episode in the second season is devoted to Galilee. And lastly, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, Did You Know? by Ted Olson in Christianity Today.
The music is Orange Juice on the Table by Monday Hopes. All these are great resources, and always feel free to reach out to me on Twitter if you have any specific questions about the information. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next week.